0: Welcome to Bancroft's Broadcasts, the school podcast where we talk to staff, parents and pupils to find out more about the school and its community. This is the place to keep up to date and in touch with our school. So let's get into this episode of Bancroft's Broadcasts.
1: In this episode of Bancroft's Broadcasts, we're learning more about the pastoral care provided at the school. Our invited experts are Liz Channer, who is Deputy Head Pastoral, and James Barr, who is Assistant Head Pastoral. We'll be asking Liz and James about the issues that might trouble children and about the support that's there to help them. We'll gain some insight into how children value the opportunity to be listened to and to be given space to explore their feelings. James, Liz, hello there.
2: Hi.
1: Hi, Xander. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really interested to, to find out more about this particular topic. But to begin with, as is customary, let's just find out a little bit more about who we're chatting to. Liz, do you want to make us start? Tell us a little about you, your job role, and maybe how long you've been at Bancrofts.
2: Okay. So my name's Elizabeth Channer. I have been here for a very long time. I've actually been here since 2000. Um, and both my children have been through the school. I've been deputy head pastoral for the last nine years and have um, oversight of pastoral strategy within the school, along with James, and um, line manager, the house masters, and have a lot to do with day-to-day and strategic pastoral care.
1: I see. And James, how about you? What's your role um, alongside Liz, and how long have you been at Bancrofts?
0: Yeah, so I work very closely. I'm as the assistant uh, head pastoral. I tend to – my focus is on the – uh, lower three years of the school, so years seven, eight, and nine, um, some sort of pastoral lead uh, and said lead for those year groups. I've been here this is my fourth year actually, although the first the first undisrupted one. So although I've been here for four years, two of those were pretty much taken out due to COVID. So it's only really this year perhaps that starting to feel uh yeah understand a little bit what's was normal in the school. Before that, I worked at Highgate for a while, but I came to teaching after a career in the army
1: beforehand. Oh, gosh, right, okay. It's interesting what you say there about the fact that this is your first sort of uninterrupted year at the school. I think quite a lot of your colleagues have, have, have chatted to us about the way that the school adapted during the pandemic, the way things changed and the way things are are sort of resuming business as usual now and, and maybe what's been learned over that time. So it'd be good to hear your perspectives on yeah, what that was like for you and for the students for for whom you care to to, to deal with that but we'll we'll come to that firstly I suppose for those of us who aren't entirely sure what this term pastoral care involves it's something we hear referred to quite a lot in terms of what people like about life at Bancroft's but tell us more about the overall the overall area when we say pastoral care what are we really talking about
2: so I think pastoral care is something that's probably developed quite considerably in the last and 15 years, 20 years ago, it probably didn't even exist as it does now. It's about the child. It's about helping the child flourish in every imaginable way, so that they can achieve success and fulfilment. And this involves all sorts of aspects of their experience in life.
0: Yeah, I think that um, yeah, certainly people who are in schools know exactly what the path is, and people who aren't are often a bit puzzled by it. I certainly. <laughs> When I was set on the system had pastoral, we go, oh, that's all. Cool. What, what is yeah, what does that actually mean? <laughs> um, and I think we we probably believe overall all that almost everything is pastoral. Um, it's very clear mm-hmm. to define what's academic in a school, but actually every interaction that the child has, everything that they come across, whether it be interacts with the teachers or with each other, or even the uh, the way the building is laid out or the even the nature of the food I suppose and all those sort of things. Each of those has an impact on how that child develops, how they grow, how they build those relationships. So I suppose in many ways the pastoral is just looking after looking after the children.
1: Right. So in a sense, everyone has a responsibility for this idea of pastoral care, looking after the children and and, and their welfare. But in particular when it comes to the role that that you two have as, as specialists in this topic Tell us more about the tasks and responsibilities that you two take on as as the school's heads of this particular topic.
2: I suppose we have um, the day-to-day, the granular, if you like, Mm -hmm. when children come to us who are upset about things that are happening in their lives, which may be big or small. And we never minimise those because they're considerable for the child and sort of triage those according to severity we might pass things on to tutors or to the house staff maybe a call cool home It may be a box of tissues and 10 minutes out of a class just to, to calm down there are also in terms of broader education there is the provision of something called learning for life which is used to be called pshe rse that's broader education around uh, life skills which we manage closely and that is talking about educating children to do with things like consent and drugs and alcohol, alcohol and all those broader areas which affect their attitudes and decisions in later life. So there is both the granular and the the broader and the more strategic, which we deal with. Would you say that's fair, James?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I suppose it's, it's about trying to steer the school in a direction that we feel is important. So... Trying to set the culture and the tone and the uh, environment in which the kids, you know, the kids learn and, as Liz said, you know, hope to flourish. So, trying to foster a, a sense of kindness, a sense of responsibility for the community, that sort, of, that sort of thing. So, is yes, it can be down to the to the tiniest detail to the more broader. Um, That's a much bigger picture.
2: Supporting healthy relationships of all kinds is something that we, we focus on very much in our discussions with children because often it is the breakdown of healthy relationships that affects them negatively.
1: Tell us more about that. Which type of relationships are we thinking about here?
2: So with the little ones, that will be very much friendships, learning to navigate friendships, learning to respond appropriately to unkindness or isolation or jealousy or um, shifts in friendship groups, which are a natural part of growing up, but often are tricky to to. To deal with, I think it would be fair to say that's a feature of of the younger years. Mm
0: -hmm. And I was going to say what we what we have noticed a little bit is the I think what's probably the impact of COVID Mm -hmm. uh, or what's when the children being away from school. Um, And we've noticed actually they need a they need a bit more help at the moment getting getting their relationships right. So I think Mm -hmm. you know a year and a half locked in their bedroom and only communicating with people by you know, sort of online has meant that actually in-person relationships and how they manage those, they just find them a little bit harder than perhaps we'd expect at this stage. So just misjudging things sometimes, misjudging things of what they say, but also misjudging what they hear as well. So perhaps reacting more sensitively than they might do. It's just, it feels a little bit like they're just a little bit out of practice at times. But, you know, so we are responding to that and trying to build those Yeah, there are both opportunities to learn those socialisation skills, you know, in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have expected to do a couple of years ago.
1: So tell us from the school's perspective I suppose and from the perspective of of having a a real interest in the in the welfare of these children and how they dealt with the pandemic how did you approach that how did the school try and ensure that that whole strange couple of years that we had was dealt with in a way that the children would be able to to handle it as best as possible
2: I think one of the things that we we introduced as a as a formal measure during covid was something called reflection where children were brought in to have a quite a a lengthy chat with their tutor about more than their grades. How are you? How are you really? How are your friendships? How much physical exercise are you getting? Have you found any new hobbies? Have there been any positive repercussions from this period for you? And I think both tutors and children found that very productive. And they felt very listened to and it was it was useful then to, to have an audit of how they were in order to feed that back to parents.
1: Were these conversations that were going on during a, a video chat, was that the medium through which they were done?
2: Often through Teams and then towards the end of the summer term, they were actually brought in one by one in very sort of carefully sequenced appointments. So it was very time consuming, but we felt it was really important to take the temperature, if you like, of whole year groups, of the mindset of the children. Um, obviously, there's a great deal in the press about how everybody was suffering terribly. And for some, that was true. And for some, it, it was not the case. For some, they thrived and enjoyed the independence and actually were found themselves to be quite um, quite liberated by some of the freedoms of not having a standard timetable during the day in the way that they, they usually did. So that, that was one way in which we tried to ascertain how our pupils were within the confines of, of the COVID lockdown period.
1: James mentioned there that he he feels some children are just having to relearn or catch up on some of the social skills perhaps that they that they weren't using during that time. Do you have any perspectives on that particular problemless?
2: yeah i would agree that they can be perhaps a bit later than you might imagine they remain quite gauche sometimes um and they have uh yeah they might be a little more rowdy a little more boisterous but actually you know once they settle down in class they are they're the same children that they always were um i just think that there have been fewer opportunities for for them to do things like go on trips so they may be less used to such things. And and also during COVID, their usual boundaries were blurred. You know, they could go downstairs in the bedroom from their lesson to the fridge with those shoes on without anyone telling them to put on or take off their jacket. And therefore, you know, returning to the confines of a school environment, I think is, is a bit of a shock for some of them. But I don't think it is a conscious or a willful thing. And it's, mm. it's just something that they're getting used to again
0: yeah I don't and know I if that the, answers your question <laughs> the sort of the, the mental health crisis the mental sort of tsunami that was predicted post pandemic no, it hasn't but that's not something we've witnessed I don't think no don't, you know there's problems and little, and little things but definitely this sort of collapse of yeah. collapse of youth under um sort of in the wake of it, it hasn't that's not something we've
2: kids are pretty witnessed. resilient really There, there were a couple who struggled with the noise when they got back, Mm. but that was for quite a limited period.
0: Oh,
1: interesting! Because they've been used to that environment at home and being in that school environment that perhaps we all take for granted was a bit of a shock to return to. Mm. Now, let's talk maybe a little about the things that the themes, perhaps, that do crop up. The things that you find yourself um, having to deal with quite often. The issues that maybe young people today face. Are there certain topics, certain themes that do form? A bit of a pattern in the things that are, are troubling children and, and young people these days
0: yeah well i think I, I mean it's it's a it's a pretty easy thing to reach for but certainly the you know the, the sort of online prevalence of social media um and their online behavior mm. i suppose it, it's, it's quite a big deal and i think that was accelerated you know it was on the, it was on the horizon now it was a factor before the pandemic but certainly that was then accelerated and you had you know sort of children much younger than they would otherwise be having pretty much unrestricted access to screens and the Internet from a yeah, from a very young age. So I think that just brought that brought screens and the Internet, social media to children a lot earlier than it would have done normally. And again, that's sort of the, the interactions that take place online where you don't have to look somebody in the eye and you don't really have to deal with the consequences of your of what you say. We see some of that sort of behaviour then either presenting in person or continuing online, where perhaps pupils haven't or kids haven't thought about how what they say could be interpreted. So there's a perhaps a sort of developing or need to develop a more nuance in terms of communication and responding to it
1: interesting and how do you help them with that how do you help them to adapt to that how do you address that particular issue when it when it emerges
0: well it does yeah it it crops up quite a lot i mean often when it's pointed out to young people then it then becomes does become much clearer to them so it's often you know we do we do some proactive stuff in terms of sort of healthy communications in the learning for life program but yeah often when you present a young person with look here's, here's what you've said in black and white. Can you see? Can you see how that could be interpreted? Actually, if they do stop and think, then they do understand the, the issues there. I think I was just thinking about it. I think there's is there a, there's some um, software or an app I think now where you can it gives you a certain amount of time between sending a message, between writing the message and then sending it. So there's a sort of you know you press send and then there's a five second delay or something, which gives you the chance to. Go, Oh, I just, wonder if that wasn't. A, wonder if that was the best thing to say, or wonder if that might be a little insensitive or hurtful.
1: Right. So, just encouraging children to to slow down that conversation, think a little more. Maybe we could all learn from from that sort of uh yeah, that sort of perspective, exactly. couldn't we?
2: I think it is the the immediacy of online interaction which can be quite dangerous for impulsive teenagers. Mm.
1: Of course. Yeah. It's good to know that you're there to to help them recognize those patterns though and help them sort of correct those patterns if 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 they need to. So aside from that on area of online conversations and and the potential risks there, Liz, are there any other particular topics or themes that you wanted to highlight that 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 you find yourself discussing with children?
2: Yes, I mean, I think that partly as a result of the pandemic, there was a there were several really high profile cases in the media. Uh, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the murder of Sarah Everard, and um, and yeah, everyone's right. invited. I, I feel that these things inevitably trickle down, and so this has changed the landscape quite significantly for for children because these things trickle down in terms of use of language, and sensitivities and sensibility to, to these sorts of issues.
1: So this is about recognising the impact that certain social issues yeah. and news stories and, and current affairs can have on children's feelings and emotions and perceptions of the world.
2: That's right. And also their awareness of their own identity and uh, particularly identifying with certain, certain groups. I think what we try and do is encourage them not to identify solely with one group because children can then end up in silos, which we know in societal terms is is quite unhealthy, that we try and encourage a a plurality of identities. If you like, we all have certain aspects of certain groups which we belong to. And that's what makes us the whole and interesting person that we are, Mm. rather than children identifying solely with one group, um, which can pitch them then against each other, and which can heighten polarities sometimes, which which can be can be dangerous. So it's it's again it's managing that, navigating that language, mm-hmm. and enabling children to to explore safely and with you know supporting guidance this changing landscape, which is a very adult one, and um, one which twenty years ago. Children simply wouldn't have been exposed to.
1: So you do think this sort of topic, this sort of conversation, has changed in recent decades?
2: Very much, very much so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think children's willingness, willingness, well, ability to identify sort of what's you know what's okay and what's not in terms of you know behavior towards them um, or things that are said, but then also their willingness to call it to call it out is. Yeah, yeah, it's huge, hugely amplified, I think. And as Liz said, those, you know, those sort of big, big headline movements which have made, you know, actually made certain behaviours just simply not okay in society. And, you know, and that's it's it's incredible that those things have happened. We have to also try and balance balance things a little bit and make sure that pupils don't swing too far the other way and um, you know, start calling things as not acceptable and actually you know that it's not quite what they think it is. So, you know, I think offering offering that balance is, um, you know, is really important for us to do and allow them to sort of navigate that. And, um, you know, again, social media doesn't help that the the um, you know sort of the echo chamber and the single point of view where if somebody doesn't agree with you, then they are the enemy, and you've got to um, sort of get a uh, yeah um, express very strong views back in return. That sort of polarizing nature of some of um, uh, some of the stuff we see now. But, you know, there's part of our job is ensuring that balance.
1: It's been really interesting to hear the word navigate crop up more than once. And I like the fact you've used that. It paints quite a nice picture for us, that it's not about you folks as teachers, as professionals saying to these children, this is this and that is that, and this is right and this is wrong. If you're helping them themselves navigate, work out their way through these issues, these feelings, these topics... Then that sounds a, a really reassuring way for them to to learn about themselves and about the world they live in
0: i think there's no no quicker way to get a child not to listen to you than say um uh, then then tell them what's right and what's wrong of course and what to do
2: i think open discussion and the capacity to think critically is something which we try and espouse um and which is played out across school life actually So to give you an example, we had a pupil-led chapel, led by the upper six a few weeks ago, um, you know, an assembly effectively, um, about the need to diversify your social media feeds so that you don't necessarily tap into an algorithm which keeps sending you certain things. So you disappear down an internet wormhole. Arguably children are, you know, they need to hear it from us, of course, that's our job, but hearing it from older peers is also very powerful. And so, yeah, the idea that we don't close down discussion, mm. um, I think is is also something that I think we would both be keen for people to know, um, even if we're pointing out that certain views or certain words, certain language is not acceptable, um, that, that we need to explore things because we are educators after all.
1: Liz, you mentioned earlier about triage. You mentioned uh, the idea of uh, assessing a situation or, a, or or a particular child's feelings or situation, and and then deciding what to do next. And you've mentioned perhaps some of the the more casual and and easy and and everyday ways you can help them manage that. What about when there's something more significant? When there's a need for them to to uh, receive some some help that's perhaps more tailored or more specialist? How does that work?
2: Well, we always make sure that we explain to the child what we're doing as we're doing it. Uh, there are safeguarding issues that come to us mm-hmm. where a child may be at risk of harm. Yeah. Um, and we would seek also, we invariably make sure that we work with families and with appropriate agencies in order to make sure that we're making the right decisions in the right order, that there aren't knee jerk reactions. That they're properly thought through. I think the key thing with both pastoral and safeguarding decisions is that one rarely makes them entirely in isolation. James and I work incredibly closely together, as we do with the house staff, because we've got a a house system. And often, you know, they will know the child very well, and we'll be able to assess the situation in the round. So it's quite often, even if decisions are made. Under pressure, and quite quickly, it's often a consultative business. Of course, if that makes sense,
1: that's really reassuring to know. Absolutely, and then James, could I ask you about counselling? Is there are there counselling sessions available for those children who maybe need some longer term support?
0: yeah absolutely so we've got three councillors in total most most days i think there are two in the building um also now some of the days so um yes yeah, so the provision the provision is significant and uh and has increased actually over the last over the last few years and it's good that we can offer that service it's you know it's sort of suddenly it's a shame that that it's required i guess but you know i think that's it, it's it's better it's there for those who need it yeah and then young person can either be referred by uh by a teacher so perhaps a a member of the house staff who's um worried about the about the child will speak to him and say actually you know you might benefit from talking to somebody in in greater confidence and somebody who's just a little bit a little bit further apart further removed from the uh sort of hustle and bustle of the school or if people can self-refer actually if they want to go um and just take themselves off that's that's also fine as well yeah i mean it's it's a it's a really good provision i think it's a really it's a really good offering they um yeah, that opportunity to talk, almost in confidence. If there's a safeguarding issue, the counsellors are required to um, required to to disclose it, so to pass it on. But yeah, actually having that space where a child can speak openly is really um, is really really valuable, I think.
1: And what feedback do you receive from the children? What do the children tell you about how they feel about the support that you're giving them?
2: It varies. <laughs> Sometimes you may not know actually until some years later that you've made a difference, which can be quite difficult. Um, pastoral work is a bit of a leaky bucket, Interesting. <laughs> however, often we meet them when they're feeling vulnerable and so they don't have the strength to articulate thanks or gratitude or any sort of feedback. Uh, so sometimes it's only afterwards that that becomes apparent. And and actually seeing them better is the reward in itself.
1: So you're really playing quite a long-term game here, aren't you? You're you're investing your time and your professionalism in caring for these young people. And those results may not be instant, but you know that if you look after them in the correct way, then in the longer term, you're helping them to develop and to, and to flourish later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is that is one of the I mean I think it's the nature of teaching and, and both on the academic and the pastoral side that actually you hope that what you're doing is good for the child and you, and you wonder whether one day they might also <laughs> become aware of that and appreciate it um, but it's that yeah it's no guarantee and I just yeah I sometimes think back to my time at school and you know probably only, only in much later life where I to go oh yeah that, that thing that that teacher said or oh when they did this or that yeah actually that does make sense now but teenagers especially don't often don't have that perspective and you know the evolution are really wired not to have it at that point but yeah you hope that some of it some of it sinks in at some point.
2: I would liken it to uh, parenting on an institutional level.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right well the, the level of care and support that you're, you're showing and the difficult conversations that you have I can, I can appreciate what you mean by that Liz absolutely. To close with, then I just wondered if I could ask for a- any advice that you may have for those of us who who work with children or who have children or who 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 care about the welfare of children. What advice might you offer? Any any wisdom you can share with us to help us sort of make sure that the that the children that we work with or that we care for are are, are okay in terms of their their mental health?
0: Actually, I think I, maybe when you started asking that question, I was like, oh "My God, what am I going to say?" But actually, I think it's really simple. I think. I think you just need to listen to the child. Mm -hmm. I think that's... Simple as that. I think if if you listen to them and actually try to hear them, then you probably won't go far wrong.
2: I think the default mechanism of many parents, because we love them so much, is to want to fix. And I don't think you can always fix. Sometimes they don't even want you to fix. You just need to listen. And it will be frustrating to step back from offering a solution. But sometimes the offering of a solution is is seen as an unwanted intrusion and not helpful so james is absolutely right listening is the thing properly listening
1: <laughs> do you think that's maybe sometimes why children really do appreciate the, the the service that you provide because perhaps their parents are in that let's fix it sort of mode and they come to you and and you will offer them perhaps something a little different, that space, and as you said that 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 feeling of being listened to.
2: Yeah, I think we have experience. I think they know that whatever they bring to us, we've probably heard it before. It's quite rare that anything comes to us which is new. Uh, that it it may always come in a slightly different guise or with slightly different permutations. but essentially we've heard it, and we won't bring any emotional baggage to it not because we don't care but because they're not our own children and yes i think there is that neutral that neutrality that we bring to it which i think is probably quite reassuring for them mm.
1: This has been so interesting. Thank you. James and Liz, you've both of you given us a really interesting impression, I think, of of the level of support you offer and the environment that creates at Bancrofts where children can, as you say, feel listened to and like their lives matter and and, and you're really looking after them. Thank you so much for telling us everything you've you've shared with us. Thank Thank you very much indeed. Bye Bye. That was Liz Channer and James Barr who head up the pastoral care provided at Bancroft School. They told us how the pandemic provided challenges for some children and how they're adapting to being back to the full school environment. James and Liz helped us understand how the best way to support children is often not to try and fix problems, but to listen to them and to help them as they navigate their own way.